0: most original and creative talent in our business would you welcome mr orson wells ladies and gentlemen orson wells again come to call for another visit good evening this is orson wells
1: Buck Benny, a two-fisted, quick-triggered marksman who shoots from
2: the hip and never misses. All right, well, Joe again. This is Buck Benny speaking. We have another Orson Wells for us uh, today. We're joined by our historian friend Vincent, who knows all about Wells, and uh, we're going to get a lot of good information about uh, about Wells's, uh performance uh, today. That he was he was doing actually does a couple performances today that he at least is going to talk about. And so I think that'll be interesting. And Vincent can give us some insight into that. He gave us some insight last week, which was, uh, I thought really interesting about what was going on with Vince, with uh, Orson and his production and everything. Uh, we have Terry Phillips here from imaginary theater, and uh, he's got a new show coming out, a new imaginary theater prof- uh, show. What, what uh, kind of, can you give us just a, a little, I don't know, preview of, uh, is it a, Last time it was Western. This time I think you said it was going to be, sci- I don't know, was it science fiction or something? I can't remember.
3: It, it is uh, science fiction E. It's uh, There's a time travel component to the story. Um, and uh, it is, uh, as often is the case with science fiction stories, it is about something that happened in the past that is relevant to today and maybe tomorrow. Oh, very cool. Well, that's a great... <laughs>
2: <laughs> little, little teaser for it so go to imagine air theater you can't see that one yet actually by the time this comes out i wouldn't be surprised if it's out by i best. hope it
3: will be by the time people are listening to this yes yeah
2: yeah i think it will be
3: because this i won't be airing for another
2: two weeks i think so i think it'll yeah it'll definitely be out by then uh kathy um we have katherine fuller seeley here who of course has written a couple books on on jack benny and uh, she's got another two in the works, I believe, for the script books anyway. Um, and,
4: and, and, and Otherwise, I'm delving into silent film history because there's nothing better than silent film on the radio. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we should start airing some silent films that we present <laughs> for my podcast. That would be great. Now in this period of silence, they're actually saying this on the screen, and <laughs> we we could sort of dub it. <laughs> Kathy, um, the uh, oh, and you're drinking your tab. That's great because you tell us a little bit about you. You went on a tab spree here, getting the tabs, and I don't think they've heard the story. Tell us your well, tab exactly,
4: spree. getting the the last getting the fifty the last forty eight. 12-packs um, uh, available in North Austin that the Coca-Cola company actually sort of gave as a present to me, although I had to buy them. Well, I'm down to my last three 12-packs. And, and being a woman who is not yet retired and still has an income, I'm going, I must still have Tab. Amazon will sell me a 12-pack of Tab for $20. Okay. And so if I wow. limit myself to just one a day, I can almost justify paying twenty dollars for a twelve pack of of sugar free soda. Um, that I always claim I've since I've been drinking tabs since I was twelve. That I'm probably embalmed from the inside out. I will die <laughs> leaving a pretty good corpse. That is that's all these lovely little. Uh, chemicals listed back here. Well,
2: this feels so special so. because you that's drinking strange. your tab while in our company. So it's like, it's like, oh, that your one tab a day you're actually using it while we're with us. So that's kind of cool. Give you a little energy, a little hey, perk, hey. a little funk. That's awesome, <laughs>
4: exactly, exactly. A little orsomeness
2: <laughs> that's so. right, that's right. But yeah, you'll never a little quite. <laughs>
4: yeah but exactly but at least we have a happier show
2: yes. this time so yes. well vincent why don't you start Although us he, he
4: himself was quite a mix
2: oh he so. was oh yeah that's what, what's what makes it interesting every week you never know what you're gonna get so it's that whole box of chocolates thing uh vincent uh <laughs> what do we what do we have for this one or what stood out for you um i kind of know where you're gonna go but go <laughs> Yeah. So as Kathy says, we get a much
1: different Orson than last week. Um, Certainly he's still preoccupied with around the world, but he seems in much better spirits about it. Um, And I think he's in good spirits for two reasons. The first one is that he says, according to him, that audiences are finally starting to like around the world. Whether or not that's true is hard to determine. As I said last episode, reviewers mostly came on the opening show. It was a disaster. Um, However, I think the other reason he's feeling better is because he's again reinforced his uh, sort of legend as the wonder kind. He you know, the show wasn't super heavy funded, what the funding that he did have, he spent on lots of other things. And so he's the only understudy and the press really pumps him up as like, again, the greatest performer director of, uh, you know, his generation again, that he's able to sort of step into these roles, both the lead role, Arthur Margaretson played Phileas Fogg, and, uh, you know, the sort of second role past part two. Um, and the the again, the press is basically only focusing on his role, they said they sort of say, like, he learned the songs 30 minutes before he got into costume, he sort of knew the lines, but he's pulled it off miraculously and ad lib. I mean, there's uh, all the reviews for the rest of this week are all about Wells playing these roles. So I think. I'm not totally convinced around the world is really working out yet. He's constantly changing the script. He's playing with the possibility of getting rid of um, the character who plays Dick fix, uh, which he eventually will cast himself in. We'll get there in the next couple episodes, but again, he's really tinkering with it. I'm not sure it's going that well, but he's moving to new Haven. So he's on a high anyway, because he is the boy wonder uh, who can do everything. And he's proven that once again.
2: Well, Vincent, let me ask you this, um, not to disparage our good friend Orson or anything, but uh, I'm just wondering if uh, these people were really sick or whether they were like, hey, we need so, something to spice up the and, and reduce the, the energy back in this thing and get people to check it out again. So, you know, if we sort of had one of our people not perform and you performed in their place, even if you did a lousy job or whatever happens. Uh, it would get notoriety and it would get us known again and, and get us pumped back up as to as to what we're doing. Uh, yeah. Do you think that's a possibility? or I would-
1: think it's, I mean, with past Part two, I wonder, I and mean, uh, it was played by a rather young gentleman. The role is young. So why he was sick, I don't 100% know, although they are as well said in this. Uh, you know, their rehearsals are sort of on the fly, so they're probably exhausted. Arthur Margitson, who played Phileas Fogg, Um, he had health issues later in his life. Uh, and I, and there is some evidence that a doctor did come very late, uh, in the day. I think it was like seven o'clock. The show started at eight, um, and said, yeah, you shouldn't perform. You should go back to your hotel room. So I think that's unlikely with that role, whether or not Wells was like, wow, we got a ton of, uh, you know, fame from me doing this, stepping into this role. Maybe I'll step into the other role. If you're kind of not feeling well, I mean, that's a possibility. But he doesn't do it again, I will say, um, for the rest of the uh, the show's life. But it's possible. Maybe they needed to spice it up. He felt like the reviews were terrible. So let's reinforce uh, sort of our faith in Wells, the reviewer's faith in Wells. Right, with him, I'm not going to doubt anything, frankly.
2: Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, Terry, you want to hop in on this then and give us anything you thought?
3: Well, um, again, looking at the, uh, the political issues of the day, as Wells did in these commentaries, I was uh, struck by the fact that um, he threw a lot on the, on the plate here. There was a, a measure in Congress to provide a loan to Great Britain that was uh, flailing. Uh, President Truman was proposing a merger of the armed forces, which in 1946 was a pretty, co- pretty controversial idea. Yeah. But today... I mean, I've been thinking for years, why do we have all these different, uh, this is heresy in, in, in military circles. I'm sure I'll get letters because of this, but why do we have different branches of the service since they all do the same thing? Well, it's the tradition of course. Right. And in the case of this particular bill, it was the, the US Navy that was, um, that was opposing it. Uh, and then the, the main topic of uh, that, at least from my perspective prior to the letter uh, was the minimum wage which um, was 65 cents an hour. And uh, the, uh, the, the minimum wage in this country has a long and, and uh, odd, I'll say history, going back to 1912, when the state of Massachusetts first approached uh, the idea. Uh, it was ruled uh, essentially unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. Uh, a few years later, Congress passed Uh, uh, an act to make the minimum wage, uh, this is during the depression made it $13 a week. Of course, that was only in the North and the South, it was $12 a week. Um, By 1938, the federal minimum wage was finally established at 25 cents an hour, uh, which by today's uh, standards adjusted for inflation is about $4.45 an hour. But then it went up uh, incrementally to 75 cents a dollar and so forth until finally in 2009, the last time the minimum wage was changed. Uh, So more than almost a dozen years ago, uh, that's the current minimum wage, which is $7.25. Now that's the federal minimum wage. There's a handful of states of course that have raised it to $15 an hour and that's a target. But Wells was attacking this uh, in 1946, as being, uh, you know, essentially uh, sinful that we are still paying people so little money, and in some cases, what amounted to um, in no money, because the, the cost of living far outstripped the ability of people uh, to um, to support themselves and keep a roof over their head. So Wells was really a, a champion of paying people uh, a living wage, not just a decent a minimum wage, but something they could afford to feed themselves and support their families with, and uh, you know, the the, the ever prescient Orison Wells predicted uh, what we would be talking about today, and exactly. we'll probably talk about tomorrow. Okay. Well, um, that's his
1: connection to the OPA too. I mean, he wants low prices for things and high wages. Yeah. Um, you know, which I, I in this episode, I I think he especially gets at the problem with uh, what OPA is dealing with right now, which is. It's all about the lobbyists from manufacturing, from meat. And he's saying that, you know, they can still make a profit if they're just producing more goods, but they don't want to produce more goods that are going to be cheap. They want to produce less goods that are more expensive. And so I think finally he's getting at that issue, which is like, you know, any uh, shortage is artificial. And um, as would come to be later in the, I think, 46, early 47, meat would essentially create an artificial shortage. Um, And then that would essentially turn public opinion against OPA, which it was controversial, but most people supported it. It was doing good things. And then suddenly they couldn't get their meat. And people were like, oh, it must be because of OPA, not because of these artificially created shortages by the meat industry. Um, So I think he's really getting at the core of the issue here, both with uh, minimum wage and the OPA in this episode. Well,
2: and to bring it to today, the... The minimum wage thing, the one thing that always kind of sticks out to me recently is I feel like there's been a few times where, uh, unfortunately, sometimes the uh, good gets shoved out trying to achieve the perfect and you end up with nothing. And so it feels like there's been a few opportunities where maybe they could have gotten the minimum wage move up to $12 an hour but they've said no, a 15 or nothing sort of thing. And so then say, okay, well, we'll just write a different bill and we'll drop it out of this bill or we'll drop it out of that bill. So they could have, we maybe could have for a few years have had $12 an hour. And I think to somebody who's making $7 an hour, that would seem like a big, nice jump versus waiting another three or four years or whatever to jump up to 15. Um, So I always think, I, I just hope the lawmakers will, Think about these things and go, okay, well, what can we get done? Uh I think famously the most the, the most famous one I can think of is probably Ted Kennedy saying that they had something somewhat equivalent to Obamacare back in the 70s that was ready to go and, and they thought they could probably pass it, but he's one of the people that voted against it because it didn't go far enough, he thought, to to get health care. And then he then he said, Well, I didn't, I had no inkling that it would be another whatever it was, 30 years later when they actually get a second shot at this thing. And so he said, we're definitely going to go with Obamacare this time. And that, of course, was right before he passed away. Uh, and they did pass Obamacare. But uh, we could have had something decades earlier and and just can kind of been tweaking it and building on it and that sort of thing over over time. So it's it's always interesting how the whole politics piece works and things. And, and the other side of it, too, is Maybe if they would have dropped to 12 hour, uh, I mean, $12 an hour uh, minimum wage, then they get resistance to that. And, you know, because you don't know, they, people say, oh, yeah, if you went with 12, we go for it. But, but once they go with 12, they're like, no, no, we meant if we go with 10, we'll go for it. And then it just keeps dropping. Um, Kathy, what are your thoughts on, on this episode? Or,
4: um, yeah. Well, I, I was so charmed by uh, the letter that uh, Orson uh, read out from Ruby Jane Douglas. And in previous episodes, we've kind of wondered how much did Orson make it up versus how much did the letter writer, if he included a name, uh, uh, You know, how much was possibly really the letter writers' work? Um, Ruby Jane Douglas does exist in the historical record. Um, She was prominent um, uh, among the uh, members of the WACS, the Women's Army Corps S service, um, uh, 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 from training in the last years of the war at camps in the US, entertaining soldiers to uh, ending up in Paris soon after the liberation and staying there after the war. She tells this wonderful story about 30 members of the company and she doesn't play up. She just says that they're like women with the army. She doesn't play up that this is an entertainment company although she says Madeline Carroll is, uh, the movie star is along with them. But she tells this um, sweet story about going out to the village of San Cyr um, um. and uh, having the group uh, give a party for uh, the orphans. And she tells some sad stories about little boys and girls who had lost their parents, who had nothing. Um, she t- a heartbreaking story about the, um, the local villagers who have a, a a small band and they're trying to play uh, the Star Spangled Banner in gratitude for these visitors who have brought food and, and happiness and joy and how oh, it's so painful to listen to because, you know, they're just sort of petering out, but they try. Um, the fact that here, uh, Ruby is writing a, in a ways to encourage um, Americans who uh, to, to join in this effort to uh, 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 provide a food and clothing and things like that for these, you know, poor starving children. In a different way, Orson had been talking before about all the starving children of Europe. Here, Ruby's letter has made them a real flesh and blood uh, that, that I almost wanted to you know, immediately send money to poor little French orphans. It was a, a very touching letter. I wanted to say that it makes a really interesting uh, connection in my mind to the Italian neo-realists. Uh, Roberto Rossellini and some of the other young Italian film directors going independent who are making similar kinds of stories about the kindness of American troops, about you know, stories of little people making a difference. Um, uh, uh, his films are absolutely wonderful. This letter comes from the same kind of place about um, using the narrative of, of vulnerable children, of, of us uh, sort of both telling the horribleness of what they've been going through, but also reaching out for our better nature to, um, to want to help. Uh, uh, these uh, children and and really revealing their humanity. So Ruby Jane Douglas, um, actually, so she performed a long time with the wax. Uh, she wrote a song called something like the wax are standing behind the, um, you know, the infantrymen and things like that. So she wrote patriotic songs. She uh, worked really hard. She eventually married and had some children. And it was delightful to, when I put her name into Google, have ancestry.com just leap up. And want to tell me things about her.
2: That's really nice. Wow. That's great. Great research.
4: One thing
1: that I thought of, Kathy, I mean, to your point, I, I like that this uh, Douglas constantly mentions, oh, it's exactly like Main Street USA, you know, to, to build this sort of like comparison. And I think Wells chooses, chooses this letter, like you said, because he definitely is into like helping people in general. But I think he also has a, a, a very political minded goal here as well, which is, He mentioned this, I think it was a couple episodes ago, but he essentially says that if we let poverty and destruction continue, continue to plague Europe, there's a fear of fascism rising again or dictatorship. And so, you know, out of that fear, he's saying, you know, let's help people out of the goodness of humanity. And because it's like America, it's like Main Street, but also, you know, we need to think politically here and we need to help people because uh, peace is at stake and and so is war uh, at risk. So.
4: Uh, Vincent, you're absolutely right. This is part of the sort of the the long Roosevelt legacy, but also that leads to the Marshall Plan, which was, you know, quite controversial on the day that the way to stop fascism was actually to help rebuild the the economies of our enemies. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, and It worked, but it was a massive amount of money being spent that, of course, conservatives have said, oh, no, let's quit spending the money but it was the the liberals and progressives who said, no, we need to spend the kind of money we spent during the war all the time. It is the government has to be uh, pumping up the economy and heavily involved in the economy. Uh, And it's led to the prosperity we've had since that the government has never, um, the American government here and around the world has has, uh, uh, been actively involved in economies ever since.
2: All right. Well, that's a great place for us to end it, I think, for this episode, because we'll get on to the actual episode. It's an interesting one. I think you guys will enjoy it. Uh, I think a little better sound quality than the previous episode, but still dicey at the beginning, if I remember right. So uh, anyway, I hope everybody enjoys it, and we'll see you all next time for more Orson Chat. Good job, everybody. It was an interesting conversation today.
0: This is Orson Welles speaking, and speaking personally, it's been quite some week. In Boston, around the world in 80 days, opened eight days ago, and without benefit of dress rehearsal. Since I spoke to you last, we at the Mercury have been making up that dress rehearsal on the installment plan. Two of our stars collapsed under the strain, a performance apiece, different performances, luckily. Because we haven't had time for understudies, and your obedient servant was the only available actor. I can tell you, for the record, that his interpretation of Mister. Phileas Fogg left much to be desired, and his reading of the role of Casper last night takes its place among the most remarkable audacities ever perpetrated in our American theater. I never was much of a one with those juvenile lover parts, and last night, with mustache hastily shaved and pants too tight, I was something to see and remember. I don't want to think what I looked like. I know I felt like Harry Truman two days before your birthday. It's not very gay to be very busy doing something you're definitely too old to try. I wish it could be that I could celebrate tomorrow with my family, instead of hanging scenery and lights with an army of unhappy stagehands in New Haven. Well, that's life. or It's my life, anyway. What's left of it around the world has taken eighty days, eighty years, rather, off that life. Happy birthday to me! But for the Mercury, there's happy news. Our show is taking the shape Cole Porter and I had in mind when we sat down to write it. And in spite of all my understudyings, audiences do seem to be starting to like our offering almost as much as we do. I haven't the right to ask for anything better on my birthday. But this week, I'm not going to talk about myself and my show. I tried it last week in a condition of such desperate physical collapse that some radio listeners, attending my tone more than my text, imagined that the microphone had been brought to my deathbed and that the Mercury Theater itself had been brought to death's door and that this Sunday editorialist was making a funeral oration over the corpse of the entire liberal cause. This impression, luckily, has little basis in fact. However, now that the palsy stop has been filtered out of my voice, maybe I can be permitted to point a finger in a couple of gloomy directions without seeming to be up to my old profession of announcing the end of the world. Happy birthday to me and to you, too, whenever you were born. I was born on May 6th, 1915. They were fighting a world war then, and on May 6th, 1945, they were still fighting the same war. There was shooting on the front from Linz to Chemnitz, but it did look a good deal like peace in Europe. On May 6, 1946... I don't think it'll look much like peace anywhere. The peacemaking machinery has all but collapsed, and I hear from Paris that Mr. Jimmy Burns has started in to whisper that he may be coming home sooner than he planned. A year ago today, the war was all but over, and this month, the draft expires. Next month, the congressmen are going home. The odds on passage of the British loan, they're longer every day. The Senate, of course, may pass the measure, but next month, the congressmen are going home. The president's proposal for merger of the armed forces, it's still bottled up in committee where the Navy Department wants to keep it. The bill to raise the minimum wage to 65 cents an hour, it's dead. Next month, the congressmen are going home. The price gougers are dreaming of a black Christmas. 55 days till that black Christmas. The black marketeers are jam-packing warehouses with food and clothing and automobiles with refrigerators and radios and furniture and other such black Christmas goodies, all against June 30th, all in the greedy hope of the death rattle of the OPA. What, again, another broadcast about OPA? Not a whole broadcast, if you please, but a minute or two, if you don't mind. Make no mistake about it, this OPA business is the most important domestic issue we faced in 10 eventful years sky-high prices, and, except for the lucky few, rents and food practically out of reach, a crazy money sickness burning the nation like fever. It's coming just as sure as God made little apples, just as sure as men sold little apples on street corners in that numb, bleak season which was the Depression before this Depression, the one due soon, unless, unless the Senate kills the crippling amendments of the OPA bill. Meanwhile, the heaviest mail in Washington's history is piling up on the desks of our elected lawmakers. Over a million letters. Some congressmen and commentators are claiming that the fight for OPA is a propaganda device. Who, please, do these congressmen and commentators think are writing all those letters? One million propagandists? Congressman Crawford. You admit you didn't write your amendment, the one that would add $400 million to the price of automobiles? Well, Mr. Congressman, if you please, who did write it? The friends of inflation are trying to win friends trying to influence people with a fantasy that price control interferes with production and shortages. Production and shortages, well, what about them? Let's look at the facts. The federal board and the Civilian Production Administration report that right now, civilian production is at an all-time peak. Right now, civilian production is 69% higher than it was in 1939. Right now, we have 52 million people at work producing goods and services. That's more than at any peacetime boom time ever enjoyed in our abundant land. Well... Production is so high, why can't people buy the things they want? There's one clear, simple answer. People are buying more. They're buying more than they ever bought before. Friends of inflation, the economic peace-wreckers, the enemies of price control, say, here's how you solve the shortage problem. Just let prices rise and rise and rise so fewer and fewer and fewer people can buy. And as prices go up, down goes the value of your savings. As prices go up, down goes the value of your earnings. As that value goes down, down goes the amount of business men can sell. Down goes the number of jobs. But that's all right. We're solving a shortage problem. You see the way it figures? If people can't buy, then the shortage problem doesn't exist. That's like curing a headache with a guillotine. Who are these friends of inflation? Well, I caught a couple of them a while back in a Turkish bath caught, as you might say, to put it delicately, caught them red-handed. I heard their voices rising out of the steam. I'm not afraid to face it, Bill. Said number one, said number two, neither am I, Jim. What this country needs is a good depression. That's what I heard in a Turkish bath. It's not the only place I heard. It's being said in locker rooms and board meetings and club cars and I suppose in padded cells too, where that kind of talk belongs. Sure, a good depression is one way to solve the shortage problem, but there's another way to solve the shortage problem. We can keep prices at levels that'll let large numbers of families buy large amounts of goods. Keeping prices down keeps living standards high. But the friends of inflation aren't interested in that. They want to break the back of organized labor with a pool of unemployed. That's their way of solving the shortage problem. That's as logical and civilized as the thinking of a tartar chieftain squatting in a fur tent, stopping his children from crying in the night by chopping them very fine with a big bloody axe. Steady prices mean steady markets and steady profits. High living standards mean high production. It's all part of the same picture. It includes lots of paychecks and lots of things to spend the money on. It includes sending a little bread to our starving neighbors... Goodwill towards men, in other words, and peace on earth. But those who are dreaming today of a black Christmas, the black marketeers looking forward to June 30th, the friends of inflation, or the enemies of price control, the same old greedy little gang, the professionals of chaos, they aren't interested in goodwill towards men and peace on earth, that isn't their racket. War, that's their business. Price war, money war, class war, race war, shooting war. There's profit in war for the greedy few. They've been around a long time and they're still open for business. So, this week we've been talking about war, and because it's a regular custom on this program to read your letters and give you a radio if we read such a letter, and because I'm a couple of letters behind in the observance already, here's a letter I'm honored to reward with the radio and most happy to read to you. It comes from an ex-captain of the Wax, Ruby Jane Douglas. Dear Mr. Wells, she writes, I want to tell you about a party. This party was given by 30 of the very fine American women well, with our armed forces in France just following V.E. Day last year, it was given for the children of Saint-Cyr, a lovely little village not far from Paris. We were 30 of us, and as we descended from the trucks, I can tell you that we were saddened by the sight we saw, for all around us was the rubble of what might have been a grocery store here or a bakery there, perhaps the courthouse on the corner or the home of Mr. and Mrs. Henry Smith, and I couldn't help but think of my own Main Street at home. How I should have felt if I'd been standing in the shambles of familiar sights instead of this little French village. On every side of us were French men and women and children to meet us, and it would be hypocrisy to say that they were friendly, for they weren't. Perhaps more than anything else, it was curiosity that brought out the town. For the week before, Miss Madeline Carroll, the famous actress, who gave up a shining career to join the American Red Cross, had visited their mayor and explained to them that we wanted to give a party for the orphan children. At any rate, the mayor came forward to greet Miss Carroll and all of us who were there. He was dressed in a worn suit and frock-tailed coat complete with boutonniere. He introduced Madeline to the French people. The program that followed reminded me again of my Main Street USA, for it was an exact duplicate of the Sunday school parties we used to have at home. From the little chorus of six-year-olds and their slick down, hair and shrill voices, to the teenage girls and boys, it seemed to be just another version of a May Day celebration. There was even the worried schoolteacher beating time with her head as she played an old, battered piano for the songs. But there was a difference, a grave difference in this party. You see, the smiling six-year-old boys and girls didn't have pudgy, dimpled elbows and knees showing. Instead, they had bony, undernourished arms and legs, sunken cheeks and eyes that failed to shine. Through the chilling winds, were still blowing through the square with a fierce velocity. There were many who were wearing only ragged little cotton suits and dresses. There were few who wore shoes on their feet. And the teenagers wouldn't know what a bobby sock was. Then came a fanfare in the big moment of the day, for it was time for each of us to select... A little brother, a sister from among the French children... ...who were left orphans in the bombed-out saint Cyr. The mayor and a committee of French women had selected 30 children... ...who needed the most help and food... ...and one by one, these came forward... ...as the mayor called their names. There was a little boy whose father had been a pilot in the French Air Force... ...shot down over German territory... ...in a ragged red dress was a small girl... ...whose mother had been taken away by some of the Nazis. her father was in the French army... ...a dark-eyed blonde child with long curls... ...simply been found one day in a blasted home... No trace of her parents' bodies has been discovered. Tears filled my eyes when my little brother was chosen and appeared out of the crowds. His name was Pierre. He was eight years old. With the most freckles and the reddest hair I'd seen since I left the States. Well, I could envision his being the most mischievous young man in school. Cutting off girls' pigtails, sneaking off the swimming hole. Instead, he was very serious, very quiet, and quite frightened as he climbed the steps to the platform. However, he looked at me, and a grin appeared on his face as he approached me, bringing with him a huge bunch of wild roses, sadly wilted from being clutched so tightly in his grimy little hands. And he stopped in front of me and made a stiff little bow, as everyone who had been practiced for the occasion, and thrust the bouquet into my hand and said, Bonjour, mademoiselle capitaine. I swallowed with difficulty answered in his best I could and kissed him on each cheek as we'd been instructed to do in accordance with the French custom. One by one, each whack smiled and greeted her little adopted friend, and program was nearing its end. And the once famous saint band stood to play in public for the first time since the Germans had occupied France. These musicians had hidden their instruments away to prevent their being seized by the enemies, and were just now able to bring them out of hiding. Although there were now only about 15 members left from an organization that had once numbered well over 50, they played with gusto. And in honor of their American visitors, they announced the Star-Spangled Banner. It was a struggle for them to play it, but they weren't at all sure of the tune still... They struck the first three notes, and our hands flew up in a salute to our flag, but they floundered, became completely lost, and stopped. And our hands came down, they began again, and up went our hands. This time they produced a tune that might have just as well been mess call or reveille it's our national anthem. Then thunder and lightning flash. The rain came down in drenching torrents, but not one of the people moved, for the thunderclap would not be followed by the flash of a dropping bomb. The lightning would not mean a shower of stones, metals, and dismembered human bodies. And the cold rain would not be putting out huge fires started in the homes of these people. So we stood in salute as, one by one, the instruments lost the tune and dropped out, leaving one lone coronet to finish the home of the brave and the land of the free. My arm was numb as it dropped to my side. Never have I been so proud to render a salute. After that, there were the refreshments... You perhaps know each week a small amount of candy and cookies and soap and cigarettes and other luxuries were rationed out to the soldiers and waxed by the army exchange. These 30 girls had saved their rations for one month to bring these hungry little boys and girls of Saint-Cyr. Here. Here's a nice thing about our party. It didn't really end when we waved goodbye to our adopted brothers and sisters. As the large trucks took us back to the barracks but you, see, each of the girls found out the size of her little child sent back the folks at home for shoes and dresses and warm underwear and other things to fit Pierre, Jean, Adele, or Henri, and the girls came back to see the children many times, bringing presents of food and good warm clothing. I saw several of the wax that day with their children up on one of the tables, and the girls were drawing on a piece of paper the shape of their tiny feet so that Mother could go to the store on Main Street, USA, and find a pair of shoes that would fit the little one. Well, Mr. Wells, this letter is not meant to be a tribute to any one person or group of persons. The one cause of this letter is the hope that it will serve to remind us that while we live comfortably under a warm roof, even though it may be a little crowded in some cases, what with several families sharing it, let's remember that there are people all over the world who've lost not just one house, but an entire town. What about their housing situation? While we stand in line for hours in front of a store to buy nylon stockings, men and women and children gather daily outside army mess halls over the world, begging for the scraps of garbage to take home in pots and pans so that they'll have something for their families to eat. I've been thinking, Mr. Wells, it'd be wonderful if every person in these bountiful United States did what those wax did in saint France, if each of us adopted an imaginary brother or sister among the men and women in the world who need so much. Then I think we'd be able to sing in our hearts the song of the angels on that certain evening long ago. Peace on earth, goodwill towards men. To ex-captain, Ruby Jane Douglas, our thanks for her letter and for a very fine suggestion. To you, my thanks for joining me this week. Please let me come call again at the same time next Sunday. Till then, I remain, as always, obediently yours. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company.